Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idle Thumbs. This weekend, we ponder why it's so much fun to play at the end of the world as Rob gets embedded into the division's post-viral apocalypse. The witness points towards some kind of collapse as well, maybe of the mental sort, but it still brought me some inspiration this week. So Rob, why don't we go first with your thoughts on the division and why it is just so much fun and so awesome and such a sort of enduring theme to play at the end of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, the division, I think right now it's a little too early to say one way or another where it will, whether it will turn out to be <laughs> a good game. Sure. Uh, because, you know, if you, if you're not familiar with this game, uh, it is sort of a, it is sort of an RPG shooter. Uh, that looks, that looks hyper realistic, uh, but then plays a lot like, I wouldn't even say Destiny necessarily. I would say hmm. maybe more of a classic MMO, uh, where you have certain types of weapons that are DPS, certain type of, type of, types of weapons that are like high burst. Okay. Uh, and that's kind of how enemies, uh, work which which isn't particularly inspiring at times right like uh there's your standard enemies who just go down in the you know after shooting a clip of ammo into them uh there's you know gold enemies which are like super bosses uh that require basically like three or four full magazines uh to take down which is not really that exciting right you just like squeeze you just press down and wait until these like <laughs> bastards go down um but you know i I kind of don't really even care that much because what I was really, really digging uh, playing the division uh, during this this beta weekend is the fact that it is this unbelievably uh, well realized uh, post like mid apocalypse New York. Nice. And yeah. it's all set sort of in the aftermath of uh, you know a holiday season that never was. Uh, and so everything, every place still has its Christmas decorations up. The stores are decorated for Christmas. Uh, there's, you know, all the signs, you know, seasons, greetings, peace on earth, and all of it's just falling into ruin and everything's sort of covered in sort of the, um, hazmat sheeting. And sure. it's very, it reminds me a lot actually of, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember this movie, uh, uh I Am Legend. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Certainly. And in the middle of that movie, there's that flashback to when the Will Smith character was trying to get his family out of New York, out of out of Manhattan. And uh, it's th- sort of this drive through Manhattan as parts of the city are realizing it's all gone to hell and parts are still weirdly normal. And that's kind of – it feels like this is that this is set in that same world almost just a few weeks later. Um, and it's very uh, – it, you know, the, 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 the conceit of The Division is that all of New York has basically been turned into uh, – a quarantine zone slash no man's land. Sure. And, you know, in some ways it even begins to sound like a meta, like a metaphor for gentrification. Yeah, basically. Because like, as you, <laughs> as you land, uh, in the city, you hear a couple soldiers, uh, talking about like, oh man, Manhattan's going to hell. They're saying, the command is saying we might have to just write off the entire borough and get the hell out of here. Yeah, I hear Brooklyn's still, I hear Brooklyn is still holding up. Yeah, but not for long. It's getting pretty bad there too. And I was like, yeah, okay, this is basically about real estate values, right? Yes. Uh, but it's, you know, the thing is, like, I just, I can't get enough of this stuff because what I love is, you know, in Bioshock, it was always so much fun looking at these tableaus that were left for you. Yes. And trying to figure out, sometimes with the aid of an audio uh, recording or something, like exactly what went down 
in that area. Uh, environmental storytelling, uh, let's call it. And in the division, I don't think it's necessarily always as clear cut what story you're supposed to draw from it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's this really evocative place that makes you think about what it begins to look like as the world you've known disappears. And I think that's what I find always really, really compelling about various sort of like uh, societal collapse scenarios is like all the stuff you take for granted, at what point does it begin to go away? And what does it look like when it does, right? Like when does water stop coming out of the tap? When does your yeah. phone go dead? You know, all these, all these little things, all these little touchstones that you sort of take for granted. Uh, and, and how does, how does that begin to affect, uh, society, right? Like what, what becomes of a bustling downtown business district when the food is no longer coming in and there's no longer any commerce? How long does it take before it starts to turn into a, you know, a complete, a complete collapse? And I always find it really interesting to see how different how different games imagine this. Cause it's really in games that you get to really um, explore like the physical locations, the physical yeah. evidence uh, for, for this kind of collapse. And I always find that really entertaining. So like in left for dead two, there's all kinds of evidence for what it began to look like as uh, sort of the, the CDC begins to throw up its hands and realize it can't <laughs> save uh, new Orleans. Uh, and, you know, here there, there's this sort of there's this sort of examination of, you know, what it begins to look like when, you know, one of the wealthiest, uh, you know, cities in the world uh, just begins to sag under the weight of, of social collapse. Yeah, God, that's that's absolutely what I look for in it as well. Just sort of exploring these kind of bizarre, just half normal, half not normal landscapes. And immediately where my brain goes is uh, sort of a game that did that really well, I think did that really well, uh, was Last of Us, sort of where yes. nature is starting to reclaim some of these areas, which also happens in uh, I Am Legend, which is a movie I actually really, really like, despite its flaws and despite its uh, theatrical ending, at least. <laughs> I uh, Yeah, I'm actually really, because I, I, I think I'm a little bit of an outlier on that front. Um, because yeah. I actually really liked that movie as well. And then I discovered most people didn't. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I, I saw it. I remember seeing it actually on New Year's Eve that year. <laughs> and I was like, that was really cool. What a great way to end whatever. I don't even remember 2007, maybe 2008. I don't even remember whatever year it was. And everybody else was like, well, that kind of sucked. And I, you know, I sort of ran well, out like, well, that was a very cool examination of, of how one person tries not to go insane when there's nobody else left but their dog. You know, it's very, very cool. And and again, what that movie did so well, other than sort of putting Will Smith in, in front of a camera and him doing his thing, was those incredible landscapes. You know, yes. these these desolate but also vibrant in a way sort of yes. landscapes as nature takes over again. It's very vibrant and beautiful and sort of the animals at the zoo have reproduced and they're, you know, he hunts game now in the middle of New York. It's yeah. fascinating. These, these very ideas, how you would survive in this completely other world is, is fascinating in so many ways. Yeah. That new ecosystem that's forming. And then yeah. just some of the, the, the imagery. And this is, I think another area where the, the division, uh, you know, does a really great job of delivering is, is you have, uh, you know, like in, in I Am Legend, you have those great shots of like Will Smith, uh, using, uh, the aircraft carrier, the, the Intrepid. 
Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, using the Intrepid as a driving range uh, and so firing cool. golf yeah. balls into <laughs> in, into Manhattan. And, um, you know, in The Division, you have just amazing scenes like um, what what appears to be sort of the, the remnants of FAO Schwartz uh, in, in the wake of the disaster uh, and how it still looked weirdly inviting and cheery, uh, even though it's become a complete hellhole. Yeah. Um, or you have at this one point in the dark zone, and I want to get to that in a minute because it's actually probably the most interesting part of the game. But in the uh, the super quarantine zone, the dark zone, uh, at one point you uh, sort of come across a building just entirely sheathed in ice. Huh. And uh, you know the friends I was playing with were like, "That well, you know what a load of crap." There's no way anything looks like that, and it's like, "No, man, you've never seen like the aftermath." of a fire in midwinter in Boston. Sure. Like that's yeah. absolutely, that's literally what <laughs> that's happens. That's what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've got all these like, you know, police cars and, uh, fire trucks sort of buried in the snow outside this, this like ice castle, uh, of a building that was, that, that was just really amazing to look at. Uh, mm-hmm. and there are, there are other touches in, in, uh, the division that, uh, are, are pretty cool. Um, you know, you find the equivalent of audio logs. You find um, scene reconstructions uh, that sort of capture various moments from the breakdown, from the collapse. Uh, so you'll it, – it's it's heavily stylized and kind of silly, but also kind of weirdly compelling. Sure. Uh, it takes – it supposedly, you know, it takes all the surveillance uh, data from – uh, the area when when some event story event went down, and reconstructs this sort of ghostly uh, th- this ghostly tableau of of everyone that was around, wow. and so you'll see uh, you know all these figures standing around uh, in line waiting to receive like emergency supplies when you know, and you'll overhear one of the doctors uh, explaining there are no supplies to be had, or you'll find um, one particularly eerie pl- eerie place is in this one intersection. Uh, where there's sort of the ghostly outline of a car uh, surrounded by guys with like Molotov cocktails and flamethrowers. Uh, and it's the moment where the, the quote unquote cleaners uh, began just attacking people. They, they see a car with infected people in it and they just attack it and burn everyone alive uh, wow. because people apparently like the implication is that people started to freak out so badly that you had people sort of take it upon themselves to enforce quarantine procedures Mm-hmm. And do it in these really hyper violent ways. So it's it's it, it's kind of it, it is it is kind of cool, and I think um, I, I I just enjoy these. I, I think these are actually more interesting than total post apocalypse scenarios. Sure. Yeah, like, definitely. Cause I because you know the thing is like the whole the whole Mad Max thing is like and that's okay that's really that's really stylized, but it's never done it for me because the whole like oh society's gone and it turns into this Hobbesian nightmare. I have never found that really that interesting. What interests me is that sort of uh, halfway point, right, yeah. where like the authorities still have some control, but not much, and a lot of things have broken down. So so then what happens, right? In The Last yeah. of Us. You know, the, the, the implication is the U.S. government still exists in some sense. It's just adopted these really, uh, you know, kind of batshit insane <laughs> yes. uh, approaches to trying to combat the problem. Uh, and in the meantime, huge swaths of the U.S. have just sort of been uh, left to fend for themselves or kept on the, the barest, uh, you know, lifeline. 
and I find those kinds of stories again really interesting because they're 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 more relatable. I think it's it, it's it's more interesting if you can extrapolate uh, from what you see you know in your daily in your daily life uh, versus a total wipe the slate slate clean uh, society is gone uh, scenario. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There's also the sort of you know psychological aspect of you know sort of the reason why post-apocalypses, you know, the very far post-apocalypses are so sort of appealing for a lot of people is that wipe the slate clean part. And the whole, you know, the whole anxiety of, well, there's, you know, seven and a half billion people on earth right now. And how much can any of us matter in a lot of ways? Like people feel very tiny because we are very tiny and sort of that psychological warmth of being like, well, there's only 200,000 people on earth right now. Everything you do really matters. You got to survive. You got to, you can, you can be the president of your little colony. Like you can make a difference. Like there's a, there's a sense of that that I think is very appealing for a lot of people, even though it's, it's sort of like a very, it's almost like a cheap conceit to, uh, to make that happen, basically. You know, the, the psychic panic of being a very, very tiny little individual and our brains being, you know, very unhappy about that. We're all sort of solipsistic. You know, I, I think there's something to that. Yeah. And I agree with you in that it's more interesting to see the sort of, well, no, the, the world is still sort of there, but but where is it? You know, where, where the decay happens at, at, you know, a higher level for certain things than other things, right? You know, there's still... The Earth itself is still, you know, kind of looks like the way the Earth looks in a lot of these sort of post-apocalypses that we're talking about. You know, the whole nature is coming back sort of thing is interesting. It's interesting to see the Earth healing just fine, whereas humans aren't doing so hot. There's there's a sort of feeling of, yeah, you know, nature doesn't really give a shit about us that is interesting and, and realistic in a lot of ways that the sort of super far-fetched apocalypse stuff doesn't really really speak to you know something like Snowpiercer which is a movie I really enjoy um, but sort of that world is not as interesting to me or at least you know sort of what's happening to the earth is not as interesting to me as you know the characters and, and sort of what else is going on whereas the world is actually interesting it sounds like in the division and the world is actually interesting in you know the last of us and uh, the Will Smith movie <laughs> you know that yeah. sort of thing yeah, I mean, I, I think the division still has a lot to prove from a you know whether or not it can do something more than just be an amazing uh, picture of New York in distress uh, is is another matter. But <laughs> sure, I think that's an important point though about a lot of these scenarios do kind of yeah they do address that sort of postmodern horror of our own yeah. insignificance, right? Like, I mean, what is like what is Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead? But like this idea that in this situation, you, a person of good conscience and, you know, leadership qualities, uh, <laughs> would have the chance to become like, you would matter, right? Yes. That like you would be, you, you, you could help, you know, you could, you could make a difference and, and save people and contribute to, and contribute to the survival of society and, and civilization. Uh, whereas, I mean, what, what, and, and I mean, that's even like, that's, that's openly the text of that entire series, really, right? Is that, um, you know, in some ways, like, it's because of the zombie apocalypse that a lot of these characters started to matter at all. That it, it's, you know, it is, as, as often as that series also is just about like jamming, uh, characters' faces into the dirt of like moral <laughs> moral squalor. Yeah, uh, there's also a sense in which the series is, uh, yeah, kind of 
kind of you know aggrandizing of yeah. uh, of some of these characters. You can matter. Even if you suck, you can totally matter to the world, basically, the human world or what's left of the human world kind of. Right, and and apocalypse scenarios have a way of doing away with the messy ambiguities of what is moral and right because oftentimes like it just comes down to survival. Yeah. That's actually why I think I liked The Last of Us so much, like all the way up until the ending. Sure. Uh, sure. And I even liked the ending because I think it, The Last of Us had this interesting tension start to emerge uh, between this idea of there being a greater public good, uh, yeah. being greater things to serve, uh, but then also where that begins to cut against uh, sort of micro, like personal morality. And yeah. at the end, like, you know, the decision that, that, that Joel makes uh, is a difficult one. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even years later, I am, I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it. But, but it was interesting how much of that decision is informed by, on the one hand, you know, you can, you know, you, you can save, you can possibly save society. Uh, on the other hand, what you've seen of the world so far makes it <laughs> both questionable that society is worth saving as it's currently constructed – and also whether or not you can really live with, uh, you know, a, a personal uh, tragedy. Yeah, there are very few games that give you, not even give you, certainly it, it took away that d- decision for you. But there are very few pieces of entertainment uh, that really do the, the heinous but understandable decision really well. Very, yeah. very few. And that's sort of one of the, the, you know, sterling examples in my mind of that done well, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, so get away from, from like the, the broader themes. Uh, I just want to talk about the divisions, uh, dark yeah. zone, uh, play because I really liked it. Like I wasn't wild about a lot of the shooting, uh, in the game, but what I really loved, I couldn't believe how sort of hooked I got on it was, uh, the extraction process in the dark zone. So in the dark zone, because it's super infected, all the gear you get there is uh unclean it's it's infected mm-hmm. so you have to have it extracted from the dark zone at these preset uh locations these helipads uh where your gear will be taken off and sanitized and then you'll have access to it but you can totally be ganked uh at any point while you're carrying stuff and the the ganker can can steal it and <laughs> and run off with it but the cool thing is of course all this begins to happen. It gets really concentrated and tense around the extractions themselves because everyone sees when you send the flare up to call for the helicopter. Helicopter doesn't arrive for a minute and a half. That is an eternity. I'm sure. Everyone has time to get to that extraction point if they want uh, and uh, sort of hang out there. And the question is, some of them are coming to also put attach their gear to the helicopter. Uh, others are coming to kill people because they have loot and steal their stuff. <laughs> and, you know, the thing is, I think when I'd heard about this, it sounded really like a one-trick pony. Like, it didn't sound like it would be that, hey, like, why would you ever turn on your groupmates? Like, you would never do that in a group of friends unless you're, like, you know, kind of a, kind of a jerk, or you all have an understanding <laughs> that you just are there to kind of grief each other. Uh, but also, I just didn't like think that there would be enough. 
it didn't seem like it could be fun because it just sort of seemed like there'd be people who were just running around killing other players and being griefers. Yeah. And then there'd be everyone else uh, who's just trying to get by. And it just sort of seemed like it could be really annoying. Not at all because the real game is about the anticipation of potential violence and trying to read each other for cues. Uh, and so like, you know, I had this great session with a friend of mine, uh, where, you know, we were just sort of the two of us trying to play it straight and collect gear. And, um, you just sort of watch people's behavior. Like someone shows up to an extraction point without any gear. They have nothing huh. to extract. Why is this person here? Are they, are they, you know, guarding a buddy? Uh, when are they going to make their move? And so you have these, these moments of like growing distrust because like you start watching that person. And drawing a beat on them and your animation clearly shows you are aiming down the sights at them. So then they start to freak out and they start to like get into cover and aim back at you. And now it's like you're, you're just sort of in this, this spiral of distrust. This, that's uh, fascinating. Oh, yeah. it's, it's really cool. <laughs> and, and, you know, we had strategies sort of pop up where, um, you know, I would run around the corner, call for an extraction. And then we would run like hell to the farthest extraction point we could get to and call for an extraction there uh, so that, you know, we use the first extraction as bait and then we run to safety. And it was just, it was really fun because like it was, it was as close as I will ever come to like doing a really tense high stakes drug buy. Nice. Uh, but it totally <laughs> felt like that stuff in like uh, the usual suspects or like Miami Vice, where like just everyone is armed to the teeth. Everyone has been brought to this one location. And just a like someone there is obviously of ill will. You don't know who it is. And the tension is just getting like unbearable. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But it was always, it was always surprisingly fun for me to sort of like live out those moments. And, uh, you know, I remember. You know, it, like my most satisfying moment was, um, we were up there. There's about 30 seconds until the chopper arrived and this guy shows up and, uh, starts like getting into cover and he doesn't have anything to trade. And, uh, I just tell my buddy like, Hey, this guy's acting a little sketchy. Like I'm going to go up to the helipad, but I think just be ready, like cover me. And he, like my buddy's watching me from, from a rooftop nearby. And, uh, sure enough, the dude opens fire on me, guns me down. And I'm like, take him, take him. And then you hear just like a heavy machine gun opening up from across the rooftop. And <laughs> the guy is killed. He's trying to take my gear. Then my buddy arrives, gets me back on my feet. And like, it was so cool to like have called that moment. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a total blast. And like, I don't know how long that'll stay fun, but in a pretty small beta, uh, I happily spent like an entire afternoon. Uh, just, just sort of repeating that moment. Like it, it sounds almost like a spy party kind of thing. Like that's a really amazing system that makes so much sense in this world. Like, of course you'd be paranoid. Of course you wouldn't trust, you know, some rando <laughs> with a gun doing that. That's that's super super cool. There is a uh, one little thing that um. So the division has this interesting problem where it's trying to like any video game has to have clearly recognizable bad guys, right? Ah, uh, yes. How do you do that? <laughs> um, if, like, how do you create bad guys in a in an environment where, like, basically it's just a bunch of New Yorkers who've been left behind, right? Yeah, yeah. And part of the solution is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of what they call Rikers, Rikers inmates who have gotten loose and are up to no good. 
Not necessarily a great mm-hmm. idea because a yeah. lot of people are sent to Rikers for temporary holding and it's turned into a complete hellhole of like, it's kind of a legal limbo uh, for yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, there's a lot of ICE stuff going on there, as I understand. Yeah, like the idea of like, oh yeah, these these are Rikers. Immigration Customs, sorry, that's that was yeah. an ACLU moment of me. Immigration's Customs Enforcement, which yeah. does a lot of dirty, gross, bad things to people who don't necessarily deserve it. Anyway, sorry. Right, and, and so Rikers <laughs> isn't like, this isn't like Gotham City's like black right. or anything yeah. like that. Like, right, like, oh man, this guy's from Rikers Island. Well, there's people who end up on Rikers Island just because they're waiting for trial, uh, uh, on, on bullshit charges. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean there. But that's one way. The other thing, though, is like the, the, the game solution. Like, who are the bad guys? Who, who's up to no good here? Uh, it's dudes in hoodies with bandanas. Oh, God. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe the bandana is not a great sign. But, you know, it's oh, cold. God. Like, but you say bandana. I say scarf. But it's like, oh, sh- oh no. It's, it's a guy in hoodie. Get him. Oh, God. Like, yeah. And the other thing is you can't have a game where you have like, oh, these guys are looters. Be careful. Except half the game is literally taking everything that is not nailed down. I came across these guys in an electronics shop who were picking it over. And the game was like, they're hostile, kill them. So I mowed them down and, you know, took all the stuff that was in the electronics shop. But, you know, it's just like, okay, but then what, like, what were they doing that was different than what I did? Yeah. Like, they were in there minding their own business. And the game was like, oh, man, kill these looters. (laughs) And so I did and got the stuff. But it was this weird, like, (laughs) the division doesn't, I think, doesn't necessarily have the clearest idea of who the bad guys are or should be. Sure. And just ends up with these really there's nothing there that's like too troubling uh be like except that if if you think about it for a moment um every like you know everything you seek there's there's another way to interpret it right it's using it's using common fears that are often uh used to other people yeah um and it's sort of using those to communicate the idea that this person is inherently hostile in the game world. I understand why that is. And this is like why, like it is probably a necessary thing to make a game like this work. But at the same time, you know, when we talk about like subtext or hidden curricula yeah. of, of games, it's not the best look in 2016. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like it could be uh, a bit of a stumble uh, for the game. I'm excited to, uh, to play the final version. It's coming out in early March, I think. Yeah, I think it's only like five weeks until it's out. Awesome. Well, uh, so Rob, so you've been playing a lot of that. I have been playing a lot of a very different kind of game. Uh, We talked about it a lot last week, but I I will be bringing it up from a very different context uh, this week. So I have put at least uh, a dozen, probably more hours into The Witness at this point. Uh, And man, oh man, uh, I am really in love with it and, and also kind of hating it, but, but I'm in love with it for some very weird reasons, I think. So, you know, I, I'm not making the swiftest progress through this game. I'll be completely honest. I think I have 145 panel puzzles and maybe five of the sort of secret puzzles. And I think there's a whole other layer of secrets beyond that. I've not uh, looked into that yet because I actually do want to kind of discover whatever the other layer of secrets is on my own. It is kind of the only real satisfaction in this game are the aha moments. And they, they are a little stingy with the ahas because typically once you solve a difficult puzzle, you just have a more difficult puzzle to solve after that. Um, but sometimes, you know, I did have a really fantastic aha moment when I, and I discovered the first sort of secret puzzle on my own, just sort of, uh, exploring the world and messing around and seeing what there was to see. And that was maybe my favorite moment so far of the entire game. But as I've been banging my head 
against the puzzles in this game. As much as I have, I can't stop playing. I can't stop thinking about it when I'm not playing. And it has inspired me in a couple of different ways, actually. Just today, um, or actually just last night, I sort of discovered another kind of puzzle in the game that was, it has to do with sound design. And I'll be vague because yes, I know we, we do talk about spoilers, but this is one of the few games where yeah. if you say too much about something, it will kind of ruin a section of the game. So I'll, I'll just be vague, but there's a sound design element to, to certain puzzles. And I figured it out. And it was actually very funny because my girlfriend was, was watching me play the game. And I was sitting there like, oh, man, I don't know what the hell to do. And just walking around literally in circles, just like, man, I don't, I don't know what to do. And I was sort of showing her, like, this is this game, right? You just, you never know what to do. And then maybe sometimes you figure it out and you think you're a genius when you figure it out. But that's, that's the entire witness experience. You just, you just walk around feeling, you know, unintelligent <laughs> most of the time. Right. And she's like, okay, all right, whatever. And then I sort of had this epiphany and I was like, oh my God, what if it's X, Y, and Z? What if it's this sound design element that I didn't think of that it just seems pretty random in the scene? And I was right. And she told me she thought I was just absolutely bananas for thinking it was that one weird thing. And then it actually was. And she's like, well, I, I guess that's the yeah. game for you, Danielle. You know, she kind of said that to me. And I was like, yes, it's perfect. And I got so excited and I'm actually teaching at uh, the Berkeley College of Music right now. And I sort of showed this puzzle to my students as sort of an example of like, this is 3D puzzle design in terms of game design and in terms of audio design and blah, blah, blah. And I got very excited. So there are sort of these little moments in the game that I that I have this weird compulsion to share with other people and in different ways for different reasons in different, completely different contexts. But it, it's lending itself to that, which is helping me sort of stay interested. The other thing, which is a much bigger topic that I totally wanted to bring to you as well, is that playing this game and banging my head against this game for hours and hours, especially one night for one puzzle in particular, I was on one puzzle for four and a half hours and it was the worst and I just wasn't getting it. It actually inspired me to put the game down and finish working on a little game project of my own that I that I had been, you know, not really working on for a few weeks since I've been busy. I was just like, God damn it, I need to do some programming. It, which is funny because a lot of these puzzles are sort of about teaching you a visual language or an auditory language. And they feel like programming in certain ways. There's a lot of the puzzle solving in this game that feels like, if this do this, if this do that, which is, you know, very much sort of the foundation yeah. of, of scripting, at least at the level I do it. I am not by any means a capital P programmer. I just do very basic, you know, C-sharp scripting in Unity. Just, just very simple things. I make little tiny little baby projects for fun. But playing this and banging my head against it made me feel the same way I do when I'm sort of trying to solve a difficult scripting problem. And it immediately made me go, oh my God, I, I know how to get this stupid walk cycle animation thing that I'm trying to do to work. It made me just realize like, oh my God, I need to try X, Y, and Z. I need to like look at the problem on its head the way I've been sort of approaching these witness puzzles. And it worked. It was this incredible moment in my life where I was like banging my head, banging my head, banging my head against this one entirely different thing. And then I was like, holy shit, I think I know how to do that other entirely different thing from a month ago. <laughs> I was like, I can't hate the witness anymore. This is awesome. It's it's making me. I got to work on this. It was sort of like dual instincts were, were happening at the same time. Like first of all, the the sort of programming puzzle or, or scripting puzzle 
quote unquote puzzle in my head that I had had for months that had just sort of blocked me on progress in my own work. And then also the sort of feeling of like, this is a bright, pretty world. I should go work on my own bright, pretty world. I should do that instead of be frustrated at this puzzle. So both of those things just made me just fly over to my computer and be like, oh man, I know what to do. I know what to do. And I should work on this anyway. I should work on this anyway. Right. Uh, I was wondering if you ever had, maybe not that specific, because this is so specific to the witness and sort of the way you, the logic puzzles work. It feels like programming in certain ways. But if you ever had sort of like a moment of inspiration from a game that made you go do something in real life or do something in a totally different context that inspired you or just gave you like a, a hint of how to get forward in something. I think for me, I, I, I tend to associate that more with um, different types of writing. Sure, yeah. Uh, so, like, I've gotten that more from um, the occasional book, but actually, like, a lot of things that affect me like that tend to be um, more dramatic pieces, sure. uh, you know, where you've got writing and acting, uh, and that te- stuff tends to be really exciting, because I think that is, it's sort of like... Um, you know, for me, I will hear, I will, I will, I will see a scene, an exchange, uh, you know, in a, in a movie or, or a TV show, and I'll be like, that, that's it. That was sort of, that was the type of music that I want a different type of writing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I hear yeah. kind of what I want to be going for. Uh, and then I, then I run off and, and sort of, and sort of do that. And so that, that I think it tends to be sort of where my, um, Eureka inspiration moments uh, t- tend to come from. Yeah, I mean, I have I have similar instincts sometimes with uh, with writing or with you know starting to draw things. Now I, again, in a, a very baby level, but I'll see something. You know, I'll be driving somewhere, or I don't drive much anymore, but I'll be you know in a car. I'll just be like, oh, I like the way that looks. I'm going to take a picture and I'm going to draw it. Like I have that instinct as well sometimes now, and it's. It's a really freeing and a very happy feeling, I have to say. Like, it's just a generally positive thing. Like, oh, this thing in this part of my life connects to this thing in this other part of my life in a really, like, holistic way or in a weird, you know, just that that connection was made, that little neurological pathway was made, and I'm going to go for it now. I, I think for me, like, what where, where it does tend to come in handy a little bit is in certain types of strategy games, uh, like games from Paradox, uh, the occasional Civ game, but it, it's mostly like your your more you sort of gnarlier uh, strategy <laughs> sure. game or war game. Um, what I find those can be good at is putting me in a mindset to tackle like larger projects uh, because I think whenever you think of a task as one giant task it's really difficult to sort of get moving on it, right? Yeah, yeah. But it can be difficult to sort of break it down into the steps you'd actually have to take to, to do it. Uh, and you, you can't, even if you know how you, like, what the steps are, you're still sort of fixated on that broader, like, immovable thing. Yeah. Uh, and when I'm playing, you know, if, I, if I'm playing, like, a really exciting strategy game uh, that, that does tend to force me into that... Where every like in a lot of strategy games, like in, in European Universalis Four, for instance, everything is interlocking. Uh, these are, and it's even more so in Crusader Kings too. But these are both games where you actually can't just say, eh, "I'm going to do whatever I want." <laughs> uh, the games constrain you pretty heavily and force you to work through all these other like secondary systems to create the opportunity to do the thing you really want to do. Um, and where that has. Like sometimes where what like and I wish it happened more often, but when I will step away from that experience, it's more like I'm just in a different mindset 
Yeah. And suddenly every problem seems very small and bite-sized because now I'm just sort of like, you know, almost like looking at a problem like the way a butcher looks at a cut of meat, sure. right? Like yeah. where you can just sort of, oh, here's here's where you can break it down. Here's, you know, here's here's where here's where you cut. And that's kind of something like that is that is a mindset that I don't get into very often because I think I I do tend to sort of fixate on the um on the big immovable things, uh, <laughs> yeah. but when I when I play games that sort of force that kind of um, that sort of strategizing and then and that sort of viewing everything as a, a procedure to follow, uh, then sometimes that sort of follows me out of the game, and for a little while it's like I've got a. Um, a timed spell on me, <laughs> like you know, for the next for the next six hours, uh, Rob Zachney has the ability to really quickly do all the tedious crap uh, that you know is necessary to set the stage for something bigger. Games train your brain for real, just not you know <laughs> the brain training games. Awesome. So I think with that, it's probably a good time to go to our mailbag, our weekend correspondence. We have a letter from Philip Fulcher here saying. Hi, Danielle and Rob. Idle Weekend is quickly becoming my favorite part of starting the weekend. Thanks for all your great insight. The last episode's discussion on reviews was great. I love seeing inside the heads of game critics. Danielle's points about game reviews having their beginning in tech reviews is interesting. In a tech review such as a phone or gadget, the primary purpose is should the reader buy this thing or not? Your discussion would indicate you don't necessarily agree with that view for game reviews. So is the purpose of a game review for both of you? Um, so, so what is the purpose of a game review for both of you? Is it your opinion on whether the game is good or not? Or maybe it's whether you personally like the game. F- Philip Fulcher. Um, yeah, actually, <laughs> I, I tend to really not love the idea of, of game reviews as sort of like consumer, you know, buy, try or buy kind of thing. Don't try, you know, that sort of idea. Uh, you know, certainly we have scores at a lot of sites and we have, um, you know, at, at Zam, actually, we instituted a sort of yes or no. And it's yep. more, it's less about whether you should buy something or spend money on something and, and more, in my opinion, whether you should experience it or not. The yes or no is not go out and buy it, spend your money, vote with your dollars. It's more, yeah, this is worthwhile. This is worth your time rather than sort of worth your money. Personally, for me, that's, that's what I gravitate towards and what I like to see out of a review as well. Um, and you know, it's, it's less about liking and more about, did you get something out of it? Did it leave you cold? Then, then it's probably not worth your time. But if it left you with something, you know, whether it's a a feeling of, of righteous anger or a feeling of, I, I felt something, I experienced something that meant something to me for, for me, that's, that's how I look at these things. Right. And I think the, the thing I'd add there is, um, I think increasingly the buyer's guide thing just doesn't work that well because game prices are so fluid. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, if, you know, you, you see people like saying, well, yeah, but is it $60 good? Well, A, I don't know what $60 is to you, but, but B, the game probably isn't going to be $60 for, for longer than a month or two. Yeah. And so the question is like, do you, do you pitch the review based on that day one experience of, of whether or not you should, you should get it? It's worth the money, uh, which is a whole lot of assumptions you have to make. But then also, you know, how's that review going to, come across when suddenly the game is like four dollars uh it's and so then the question is should you experience this like the game is almost free uh is that something like should at that point should you set the the, the time aside to engage with this thing yeah uh, and i tend to sort of i think uh go in that direction uh a little more now uh these days and i i do think 
like I do try to evaluate sort of the uh, the execution of what uh, of of what's there, uh, but I think more and more I am sort of going in that more in that direction of is there something here that's going to sort of stick with you uh, and, and uh, be something you're, you're returning to uh, for after you've played the game. Interesting side effect, I think, of the tech reviews thing, and I think this <laughs> contributes to the score inflation. Uh, most game sites up until fairly recently had score scales that were totally based on old like tech review standards where yeah. like one, two, three, and four were all basically like talking about elements of just like pure non-functionality. Uh, PC gamer until I think very recently, like, you know, below 40%, you were talking about a game that basically didn't work. Uh, and, you know, throughout the, you know, 90s, that was actually a really important question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and maybe as important again in this new age of, uh, everyone, uh, being on Steam. Uh, that question is maybe becoming important, uh, once more, but, I think for most games that like someone like me or you is going to review the question of whether or not the thing like loaded and didn't like <laughs> crash desktop 20 times and didn't, you know, all these things, that's not the, the, you know, it's like basically saying, well, if the game isn't completely broken garbage, <laughs> it starts with a score of 50% and we move from there, which is a crazy scale. I think I, I saw someone yeah. liking it once. Like it's like reviewing movies by like starting at two stars because like, <laughs> the film didn't like catch fire during the showing or yeah. the camera didn't fall over during like during the shoots. <laughs> like that's kind of what a lot of these review scales are, are, are based on. And I think it's kind of twisted them uh, forever and all time because when you have that continuity going back like 20 years, there is this sort of, I think, desire to have some sort of consistency, right? So how could uh, like, how could Paint Brawl Extreme be be like a ten percent game, and then years and years later you're saying Watch Dogs is ten percent? Uh, you know, obviously in terms of qu like quality uh, as a product, a tech product, uh, they're night and day apart. Whether their quality in terms of being like an experience is that different uh, is another matter entirely. Yeah. Our next email comes from Stephen Thomas. Stephen writes, what are your thoughts on the idea that video games do not need to be fun, but rather should focus on being engaging? I feel many people have pigeonholed video games in a place where it's hard to make something like you described Kane and Lynch because it's not fun. However, your description of the mechanics make it sound like a wonderful game that explores the reality of what a man, uh, a man like that would actually exist in. Another classic thumbs example is Far Cry 2, which literally makes your experience miserable due to sickness. I just feel a focus on engagement would produce a lot more interesting titles. I think we're seeing a lot more of this, uh, at least uh, we're seeing a lot more of this in the sort of tiny uh, little little baby game, not baby game. Sorry, I didn't mean to make it sound like that. But just very very small, you know, one person making something types of games. Uh, we had a letter uh, a few weeks ago from uh, Nyamf, I believe uh, was her name. Nyamf, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, who talked about that? The the sort of making things unfair but interesting. Uh, that sort of approach to game design, which a lot of folks in in sort of the you know the itchios that I talk about, the very very tiny games uh, do that. You know, and and of course the sterling examples from the last couple of years, games that have gotten a lot of attention, things like Cart Life or things like Papers Please, they're not fun at all, really, in the traditional sense. But they make a point. People have enjoyed them and gotten something out of them. Certainly, uh, you know, little 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 games, basically little games that are 
teaching about unfairnesses a lot of times do this really, really, really well. Um, and we're seeing a ton of those. If you go to sort of the itch.io main page or itch.io sort of main page, you'll see a lot of games from people who have interesting things to say um, or, or interesting things that they want you to engage with that aren't necessarily you know, traditionally fun, but they're, they're doing it really well. So I generally do agree with you, Stephen. I, I think things should have a point or be engaging or, or sort of do something. They should make the player feel something on the most basic level. Um, I think that's more important than, hey, you're having fun <laughs> right now. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a tendency to sort of, like, dwell on stuff. Like, the amount of discussion of how, like, annoying the malaria was in Far Cry 2, like, <laughs> dramatically overstates the degree to which that is a thing that will in- impact your moment-to-moment uh, play of that yeah. game. Uh, you know, issues about, like, the... Uh, there's an analogy I return to a lot uh, from this book called The Perfectionist, uh, which is about... Oh, uh, yeah. This, that French chef, uh, Bernard Loiseau. You know, the, 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 the analogy there was the reason haute cuisine gets so silly is because food critics increasingly just want weird stuff <laughs> that will excite them because all, like, you know, once you've had all the classics prepared brilliantly a thousand times, you just don't care anymore. Uh, and so then increasingly you want weird stuff. Uh, but for most people who just, like, you know, they just want a good meal. And I, I do, like, try to also keep that in mind uh, as well. You know, like, I, I love that. I love that engagement. And I think that stuff is really interesting. Uh, but at the same time, like, I totally understand also sometimes people just want just want a good game where you're a guy with a big machine gun and a lot of enemies. Yeah. And you know what? I, I totally <laughs> I totally get that. The video game ass video games. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so to wrap things up, uh, we have an anonymous email, uh, but it's a little bit lengthy. Uh, but last week we asked about changes to the Steam store. Uh you know, as relates to what's going on with Arkin Games right now and the fact that they suddenly sort of lost their ability to sell their back catalog uh, sometime in 2015 uh, due to changes with the Steam Store. We asked what those changes were, and this listener uh, responded with a quick breakdown of the various ways that the Steam, to- Steam Store started to evolve and change in the last year or so. Before, it used to be if you got onto Steam, you're almost guaranteed to be profitable because it was curated by Valve quite a bit. Uh, However, as more and more digital marketplaces began to pop up to compete with Steam, uh, Valve realized there was more money to be had in having a wider selection. The next problem is one that's not immediately obvious, and that's Steam sales. Big Steam sales used to be further apart, and they were a big event when they happened. Over time, though, things changed. Sales began to happen more frequently. What this led to was a training of customers to not buy games at full price, especially indie games, since they go on what is considered a good sale fairly often. Before, where you sort of judged your success based on initial sales, you now more or less judge based on your first Steam sale, since so many people now wait for a sale before buying. (laughs) There's also now the issue of the big sales themselves. In prior sales, it used to be that games would be on sale, but each day there would be games on an extra low sale or a short time window in which they were on these uh, flash sales. It led to impulse purchasing of games because it's on sale now, and I don't know if it will be on sale again at this price. Uh, that mindset got people talking about the games, and uh, it got them talking about games that were on sale in both games media and social media. In this year's winter sale, however, Steam did an odd move. 
On day one, all games were on sale at the lowest price they would be for that entire sale. There would be no more timed super discounts or vote for the game you want to see on sale. Instead, they chose to try and highlight certain games on the front page each day with a portion dedicated to games that it thinks you want. To understand the effect this had on social media, if you look at the number of comments per day in the Reddit Game Deal subreddit compared to the previous year, it noticeably declines and uh, declines faster and it stays declined. Removing flash sales alone rips out a lot of your exposure. Wow. So that's a, like, that is a pretty, I think, decent summary of, of all the changes uh, that have happened, at least in, as far as like Steam surfacing uh, back catalog games to people logging into Steam. And, you know, it sort of it, it tracks with my, you know, anecdotal uh, personal experience because in the last year, I basically stopped buying games. Hmm. And yeah. I used to, like, I used to love. Steam sales, like it was fun. It was it was shopping as entertainment. Yeah, and it's, it, now this is a weird thing though. It's possible Valve have done all of us a solid <laughs> by stop gaming us so damn much about sales psychology, right? And like you know, supplies are going fast, <laughs> so you no longer have that sort of that heightened emotional state of this game's going to be off sale in five minutes. Do you want it now for eight ninety nine because it's about to go back to thirty dollars? Yeah, and that got me to buy a lot of stuff I've never played. So in some <laughs> ways, it's possible this is more consumer friendly. Yeah. On the other hand, I kind of miss, I kind of miss the entertainment aspect. Yeah, it's like it used to be a, a you know. Okay, maybe I'm a big dork here, but like going to like a Lego Imagination Center for cool things that you would buy and play with, but now it's like just an Amazon storefront or something. Yeah. Like, need to I need to buy some toilet paper. Uh, I guess I'll get a game too. You know, not a not the fun happy thing. Now, yeah, I I agree. I mean, I actually don't uh spend a ton of money on Steam and I kind of never did just because I just always kind of been uh, broke ever since I've been an adult because of student loans and, and always sort of was like, well, I need to save up for that one game I really want and then wait for it to be on sale. And I was like, you know, the orphan on Christmas kind of thing. Oh, see, quitting <laughs> smoking me. like left me with the psychological like thing where for years and, and until fairly recently, I could justify anything that was like the price of a pack of cigarettes or a couple nice. packs of cigarettes. So it's like, oh man, you don't smoke anymore, Rob. So really like you know, think about how much money you have in your pocket that you didn't have before. <laughs> You're saving money. Uh, so, you know, could it possibly, like, you used to, like, spend this money and just smoke cigarettes. And now you could spend that money and buy this game. Isn't that wiser? And so, like, I probably had a good, like, five years or so where I was completely, like, talking myself into situations like that. Yeah, I, I, I was the same way with running clothes. But that's a totally different yeah. kind of nerdery. <laughs> but, you know, so it's, it's, it's a weird thing because on the one hand, like... It might actually be better for us as, uh, you know, call ourselves consumers in this case, uh, because we no longer have this, this storefront with daily access into our lives that is running these, these games to try and get us to spend money that spend money on things we fundamentally don't want or need, yeah. right? Like I have like 600 games in my Steam library. I've probably played like, not that many. I probably, I probably played <laughs> sure. like a third of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like a lot of money's back in my pocket because Steam kind of made buying games on Steam uninteresting. And so Steam like has no, I, I guess, responsibility to make sure that like developers are getting that sort of steady exposure and, cr and in a situation where 
you can have these, uh, you know, customers sort of encouraged to impulse buy your game. Uh, but at the same time, it does kind of suck because those rules kind of changed abruptly. Yeah. And it does sort of seem like, um, if you take out that feeling of there being anything special about a game or a sale, you actually make it less interesting than it might otherwise be. And I still feel a little sour about that sort of discovery portion as well. Uh, you know, where it actually was a little easier for sort of weirder or more off off the beaten path games to get seen because it was less about sort of the the curation of the same ten dudes kind of thing. You know that that everybody would see. Um, well, yeah, and like, yeah, in some ways, like the Steam storefront now reflects the preferences of, I guess, the majority, which isn't a, a crazy idea. But at the same time, like, look, I've heard of Rust. I've seen it. Yeah. I've, I'm aware that this game exists and I can buy it. If I haven't bought it, you know, in the last six months and a hundred times it's appeared on the main page, I'm probably not buying it tomorrow. So maybe we could, yeah. maybe we could like tell people <laughs> about other games that aren't Rust, that aren't survival games, uh, that they might enjoy. Totally with that. And on that note, I think it's time for us to move on to our weekend projects. Rob, are you watching, listening to, seeing, reading anything that's setting your world on fire right now? Uh, so, you know, I mean, I have, um, I finished The Expanse this week, okay. uh, which ended up being pretty damn good sci-fi. I'm not going to get into spoilers, but I, I really enjoyed that series by the end and, and warmed up to it, uh, quite a bit. I think it, I think it pretty much delivered, uh, what I want. Awesome. Uh, the awkward part is that entire first season, I think was basically a prologue. A little bit. Yeah. I, I'm almost done. I'm sort of halfway through the last portion of the last episode. So I'm, I'm right there with you, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about after you're, after you're done yeah. with that episode. Yeah. Cause it totally felt at the end, like at the end, it was like, all right, everybody. Now we've got all the main characters together and we have our story. And now the real thing can begin, <laughs> which much. is kind of an awkward place <laughs> to find yourself after like 10 hours of television. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's but, expansive. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly. <laughs> Sorry. The Expanse turns out to be a description of uh, its plotting. <laughs> um, but no, what, I, what I've really gotten into the, the, the past week or so, uh, just because it's been a crazy stressful uh, time lately, yeah. uh, you know, I needed sort of trashy, entertaining television, so <laughs> I went to Netflix and just been shotgunning uh, season three of The Arrow and uh, season one of The Flash, like, back-to-back. Awesome. Okay. Um and like the, the, I can't even call them guilty pleasures. Like they're legitimately enjoyable. But what I find like most entertaining right now in the way these two these two shows that broadcast simultaneously, uh, the way they pair off against each other, is that using two slightly lesser DC superheroes, uh, what the CW ended up creating was very much sort of a classic. Um, Batman versus Superman type story, <laughs> uh, where season three Arrow is all about the, the, the classic, like, bad Batman tropes, where, like, uh, the, the, the Oliver Queen character, uh, is controlling everybody around him, uh, by making them part of his quest to fight crime and is incre- becoming increasingly, like, isolated and unstable, uh, as sort of his quest consumes him. And then the other show, The Flash, is about this almost like Clark Kent-esque all-American <laughs> boy, uh, with magic superpowers, who fundamentally, like, uses his powers to make the world a better place. And what do you know? 
it stays a better place. Like he does things <laughs> and things are fixed and they're good and people are happy. Uh, and it's just, it's interesting watching these, these, these two shows cause they, they intersect, uh, at various points. And the episodes I was just watching the other night was, uh, the, the, this pair of crossover episodes that was just like my favorite kind of superhero thing, which was actually a lot of just two superheroes discussing their particular brand of heroism hmm. and the moral universe that it implies. And I am just a total sucker for crap like that because I think I think comic book characters are as close as like American culture has to like classical mythology. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like the, like these really are are char- they, they fulfill the same role. And it's interesting because you get to see these really exaggerated personalities where uh, virtues and vices take on this heroic proportion. Uh, you get to see them sort of you know, get together on a stage and play out these little dramas uh, that would be preposterous if they were about normal characters, right? But when you have a guy who is, a, you know, the fastest man in the world, uh, superhumanly fast versus, uh, you know, a, a billionaire vigilante, it gets pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, that actually sounds really fun. I have not dipped my toes into either of those yet, but I've kind of, I don't know, I know I'll probably enjoy them on on some level at some point. Um, I have two really quick, well, one's quick and one I'll, I'll talk about a tiny bit more uh, this weekend. And my first one is Gravity Rush Remastered. It's a PS4 mm-hmm. game, uh, sort of an HD remaster of a really just fantastic uh, PlayStation Vita game that was overlooked because, you know, it was on PlayStation Vita, which is a... a platform I enjoy and like, but it, it certainly hasn't been the most successful. Uh, and it is just a wonderful, wonderful little, um, it's actually sort of a hybrid platformer, open world, time attack sort of, of game. You, you play as a, a, a woman character who has a, a cat companions. Of course, it's awesome already. Uh, and she can manipulate gravity basically. And you spend a lot of your time sort of rushing from one surface to the next, uh, you know, manipulating gravity, walking, running up walls, running down things, running up things, uh, very fast paced, a lot of fun. And it actually weirdly sort of looks and feels like an Assassin's Creed game on acid, you know, without the combat as much, you know, there is combat in this game. It's a little bit more classically, uh, platformer combat. You're, you're typically kicking things and jumping on things and that sort of thing. But the world itself feels like you're basically doing anti-gravity parkour all over this world. And it's just really, really fun, a uh, really cool game that I'm, I'm hoping will get a little bit more attention now that it's on the PS4. So this weekend, I also saw Creed. Hi, this is Chris. I produced the show and I just want to give you a heads up that the entire rest of this episode uh, is pretty much about Rocky. So if that's your thing, stick around. And if it's not, no worries. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, if you are taken off, thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter, at Idle Weekend. Uh, tell a friend. It means a lot. This weekend, I also saw Creed. Uh, finally, finally, I know it was ridiculous that it took me so long to see it. Uh, obviously I, I'm a boxer. I love boxing. I adore the Rocky series. I don't always think all the movies in the Rocky series are good by any means. Um, <laughs> well, Rocky is a legitimately great American oh, it's fantastic. film. fantastic. And the fantastic. rest is a franchise. This is, this is the curse of Sylvester Stallone, right? Yeah. Yes. He makes First Blood and Rocky, both like legitimately genius films. Hell yes. And then, they both spawn series that kind of fundamentally missed the point. A little bit. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm always going to have a soft spot in my heart for Rocky IV. Uh, just, just mainly for the just wonderful superhero cheese that it is. That is that the Soviet basically. one? Yes. Okay. With Ivan Drago on the, on the treadmill and the, uh, just Rocky throwing the sled around the barn, you know, just ridiculous. Just stupid, totally Hanks. useless training regime. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the best of, of that. Sort I, of I like, cheese. I like Rocky three cause, uh, Mr. T, Clever Lang. Yeah. Like that's some, that's some good stuff. Yeah, and it you is. Get, I think it's, it's just the happiest Rocky and it I really is. liked it when I was a kid cause like everyone is there and alive at the end. Yeah. It's a, it's the feel good, <laughs> the feel good Rocky. Um, I think Creed is absolutely on par with maybe even the best Rocky film. I think it is phenomenal. I, I really, really one of the best movies of the year in a, in a year where there were several movies. There were five movies that I could have been happy with as sort of movie of the year. Very, very uh, disparate and wonderful sort of cinematic experiences. And I, I'll be really quick, but I will tell you what they are. Carol was amazing. Uh, Inside Out. Um, Mad Max, of course. And, uh, there was a movie called Advantageous that nobody saw. It's on Netflix, but it's, it's fantastic and wonderful. And I might actually just bring it up for another weekend correspondence some, some other time. Uh, but. Wait, is that a daily sci-fi one? It is. It is actually. Is it about the aging? Sort of, yes. Oh, yeah. It, it's, uh, it yeah, okay. Came out I've the seen same. that on Netflix and I've always been close to it. Okay. Yeah. It's, I think it's actually great. Very, very low budget sci-fi. So, you know, it's, it's lower budget than The Expanse, even uh, very much so. Uh, but, Great. Uh, and it has the same premise as that terrible Ryan Reynolds movie, uh, w- with him and Ben oh, Kingsley. The one about time? Same general premise, you know, body swapping in terms of, you know, yeah. to get younger or whatever. But, uh, it came out the same week, I think, on Netflix as, as, as that crappy Ryan Reynolds movie, and it was a thousand times better. Um, but yeah, I, w- I will probably bring that up at some other point. But, uh, great, great movies this year. And this was was right up there with them. Just such a wonderful movie about uh, somebody who has something to prove, somebody who's very much has the personality of a fighter, which is not always a good thing, and and, and not in the ways you might think. Like fighters can be fairly boring people. They train all day long, and yeah. they are a hundred percent drive. You know, Olympic athletes and fighters and sleep like 10 yeah, they hours. sleep all you know they sleep a lot, and otherwise they're training. I mean, this this you know. Um, Michael P. Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, rather, uh, portrays this young man who, uh, is, is the son of Apollo Creed, you know, famous Rocky, you know, uh, it's, it, yeah. it's funny. This movie sort of really rides the line between being sort of an entry in a franchise, a storied franchise, and also very much stands alone as a, as a really beautiful little piece of work. Uh, what it does best, other than be a just awesome movie about sort of, uh, you know, it's a character study about this person who feels he has something to prove. He's not the most interesting person in the world, and I think that will turn a lot of people off, but it felt very realistic to me as somebody who spends a lot of time around other boxers. You know, they're just very dedicated, very driven, uh, very, very obsessed with the one thing that they do really, really well, and that's them. Uh, but there's also a really sweet and kind of wonderful romance in this movie, uh, very much a movie about, uh, you know, friendship and fatherhood, I guess you could say. And also boxing. It, it feels like boxing. Watching this movie feels like being in a fight. The way the sound design just crunches those hits when somebody gets hit. That is so what it feels like to actually get punched in the face. Um, obviously, I've never been punched in the face by, you know, like a champion heavyweight. Thank God. Uh, but because <laughs> that would literally I would kill be dead. most people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, but it, but it very much captures the energy and the brutality and the just absolute beauty 
of the sport of boxing and all the reasons why, why it's just such a glorious, you know, sport. Basically, it's just, it's, it's this completely pure, uh, completely, it's, it's hard to describe actually just, just how well this sort of fits boxing in, but, uh, just such a great movie. Uh, I feel like it's totally getting robbed, uh, by the Academy. <laughs> I think it's a little weird that sort of the one white guy in the movie is getting, uh, nominated and nobody else did because this is very much a movie about people of color. Um, well, so, uh. but how much of that is also like, did Stallone ever get an award for anything? Oh God. Like, I mean, like, wasn't Rocky best picture that year? In 76? I think it was actually, I mean, he, I don't think he, he was best actor, but he, um, he wrote Rocky, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he, he was nominated for screenplay. Yeah, he wrote Rocky. Yeah. This is, Stallone's actually a really cool guy. Yeah, he right? is. He's, like, he's a talented the, the dude. The script for Rocky's yeah. brilliant. Oh, hell yeah. Um, yeah, so he got best actor nomination, best original screenplay, nominated, didn't win. Right. Um, which, like, I, I just wondered, like, it, this just smacks of one of those nominations where, like, yeah, the Academy is feeling a little regretful that it never honored the guy's <laughs> work at any point. And so it, it's like Scorsese departed. Oh, for sure. Which is, um, yeah, the most of that. But, yeah, it is. It is a little. It's it's not a great. Um, not a great look. Not a great year Academy. for the Academy. Yeah. Uh, as as a body i mean the academy never has great years really it's a, it's a really it's a really <laughs> bad sure? award yes. it's a really bad film award yes <laughs> uh their record is is pretty atrocious but that's correct <laughs> uh yeah it's 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 a little upsetting uh but you know if you're putting it up there with rocky like my question is because I, I i just watched rocky like last year or so yeah. i hadn't watched it in years and uh, I just watched a, a new blu-ray transfer and it was like glorious oh, and yeah. like the the that soundtrack it's it's a great film, but what I love about it, and I'm very curious and a little suspicious that Creed can possibly live <laughs> up to this, is Rocky is such a movie of 70s cinema, sure, right? Sure, like yeah. It's shot on location, but also just has this, it is about people who don't remotely look like movie stars, like because yeah. they really aren't. Like everyone, there's this entire little world of people in these you know, living like in this this shabby little world, uh, you know, stuck in these in these kind of depressing dead end lives, and what you get, you know, in addition to some great fight, a great fight scene in in Rocky, is you get that sudden explosion of anger and rage from Adrian against her brother, yeah, uh, during that like really just gut wrenching um, scene in Adrian's house. Uh, and it's it's a it's a painful it's a painful thing, but it's authentic and real, and adds so much to that character's uh, adds so much so many dimensions to that character, and tells you so much about what her life is like. Or the you know the the incredibly like you know Rocky just unloading on his coach uh, for not <laughs> believing believing him when it mattered. Yeah. Uh, and so you like what I love is that that movie had this sort of. Um, Often this authenticity, but also just this this really angry and sad working class sensibility uh, that uh, I think make it a far more important and, and better film than a lot of people actually remember. Yeah, because right? people remember like Rocky is this fundamentally uplifting story, but the original Rocky really just sort of drags you hell, it drags you through <laughs> yeah. hell, and the moral is he's not going to beat the guy. It's just showing that he can stand there in the ring with a guy like Apollo Creed, get the shit knocked out of him. And still be standing at the end. And keep and coming forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the thing I'm very curious. Like, 
does Creed deliver on that broader, you know, does Creed pull off the, the same sort of like broader success that I think Rocky had? I think it's very different, uh, but I think mm-hmm. it does have the same success in sort of pulling those small moments and the big moments, you know, like, like it, I think it works really, really well in those small, intimate kind of settings. It, it really is infused with sort of Philadelphia itself. You know, I, I'm yeah. not from Philly, but I know a lot of folks, there's a lot of Philly pride in that movie. There's they actually a lot have of- a scene with him talking to, um, to, to Michael B. Jordan beneath the Rocky statue, right? Yes, they do. <laughs> the little nod to like the fiction becoming real yep. within the fiction. <laughs> they yeah. certainly do. This it's a movie that knows what it's doing. I think. I think yeah. personally. And again, I need to watch Rocky again before I can really make that statement. I I, I want to say like it might be. Uh, you know, right now coming off the high of watching Creed, I feel like oh, it stands right up there with Rocky. Right. But I'm I'm know. going to beg you. Yeah. Um, do it again. At some point, we need to. <laughs> at some point, we need to actually like. Have a podcast section on best boxing movies. Oh uh, my god! A lot of good ones. Yes, that would uh, make me so happy. <laughs> have you seen Ali? I have not actually. Oh dear lord, you got to see Ali. All right. So Ali is this amazing period piece that captures sort of the the sort of epic sweep of Muhammad Ali's life. So you've got like long sections dealing with um, his relationship with Malcolm X and the schism within uh, the Nation of Islam. You've got. Uh, things about like his decision not to not to go to Vietnam, yeah. uh, not to be drafted, yeah. and what that cost him. Uh, and so, on the one hand, you've got this this amazing uh, you know this amazing period film, uh, and on the other hand, you have some truly amazing fight scenes. Because as I understand it, uh, what Michael Mann did was for all the characters who weren't Will Smith, uh, he got uh, re- uh, he got fighters. Uh, real fighters who wow. looked enough like the guys they were mimicking, yeah. and because they were fighters, knew the game well enough to mimic uh, the the fighting styles of these guys. That's and the guy playing yeah. the guy playing Sonny Liston is just it's 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 uncanny. I have seen like you can do side by side comparison of the shots in in Ali versus the actual footage of the Ali Liston fights. Wow, and it's like it, it's unbelievably well matched. Uh, and then Will Smith just does an astonishing job uh, channeling uh, Muhammad Ali. I, I think you would. I, I think you would really dig it. I don't think it's a. It, it, you know, its ambitions aren't to be a great boxing movie. Uh, it's it, it's its best fight scene is uh, you know the, the Rumble in the Jungle, obviously the the Ali uh, Foreman fight. But the fact that whenever fighting does happen, it has that like unbelievable authenticity. Uh, something you'd, you'd really appreciate it. So. Yeah, it's something we need to have a big discussion of fighting movies, uh, but I would I would highly recommend that one. Awesome. I, I It's on my list. It's like immediately on my list right now, <laughs> for sure. Um, but I was just thinking as you were talking right now, sort of about, um, you know, sort of channeling things. And, and what Creed does so well is that it sort of reverses the original Rocky story. So Rocky is very much about a guy who is, he's a small town hero. I mean, he's coming up to be a small town hero, but he is so much a product of Philly. And Creed is so much more about somebody who's trying to find his place in that world. He's from LA. He's raised very differently. He comes from a completely different world, basically. Um, and, and he wants to be a small town hero. He wants to be somebody worthy of his name, basically, in, in a lot of ways. And it, it does these things in those big moments and those big fight scenes. And it does them in these really quiet little moments. And these, these sort of small touches where he shows, 
Um, and, and he wants to be a small town hero. He wants to be somebody worthy of his name, basically, in, in a lot of ways. And it, it does these things in those big moments and those big fight scenes. And it does them in these really quiet little moments and these, these sort of small touches where he shows who he really is. And Rocky sort of, Rocky makes a real, a real, he has a real character arc in this movie, and it's it's kind of an awesome, uh, beautiful thing. A little bit cheesy, of course, which I uh, I think is totally fine in a sports movie. There's going to be a little bit of cheese. Athletes are cheesy. We're cheesy ass people sometimes. Sometimes you you listen to the Rocky montage and it does something for you. You maybe you're a little bit cheesy, you know, and and I think that's more than fine and perfectly appropriate for like a great sports movie. Uh, but yeah. Great sports movie, great boxing movie, and now I need to see Ali, <laughs> basically. Awesome. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. So if you've been listening uh, to our wonderful podcast here, we appreciate it so, so much. We we love all the mail we're getting. We're getting so many like amazing letters. Uh, please tell your friends, your family, everybody who you think might enjoy this podcast. Please do share and please do rate us on iTunes. It helps us out so much and we just love you for it. Awesome. So you can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for that weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Perfect. Awesome.